If it isn't the damnedest thing when you get people who are really good at something and they get so good at something that they get bored with what they're required to do, and this mass product is produced in such a way that's, you know, given for the consumer, not the creator. Well, when those creators get a little free time and a whole lot of music built up behind them, something new is created. Sometimes an art form more for musicians than their viewers. Tonight we're going to talk about the birth of bebop, more specifically through our very fine friend, Charlie Parker. Thank you for listening to the second season of Dude Check Out This Song. I'm Ian. And I'm Pat. Officially, colloquial episode nine, but season two. Season two. God, it feels good in here, doesn't it? Yeah, it's nice to be talking about this again. Oh my God. Dude, check out this song, season two. Woo! All right. So, we might as well get straight to it. We're talking about Charlie Parker tonight. Yep, and Charlie Parker was born Charles Christopher Parker Jr. in Kansas City, Kansas on August 29th, 1920. The only child of Charles and Addie Parker. Oh, yes, starting in the 20s. It feels good to be really... We're starting to correct here. We're getting it off in the 20s and then moving forward. Sort of. We'll jump back and forth this season. Yeah, exactly. We're hoping to make sure to include a lot more uh, things from the previous, but also move a little to the forward. And if you guys didn't know, Charlie Parker, his nickname was Yardbird or Bird. It it will definitely come into play in this episode for sure. You just got to know that right up front. That was his nickname. He yeah. was known as that. He even recorded albums under that name. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I, I wonder, was he like a tall, lanky guy? Was it because of his physical form that he got the nickname Bird? We'll get to that. Oh. And so, Charles Parker, his father was an African-American stage entertainer. His mother, you know, she was a maid of Native American heritage. And when he was seven years old, they moved to Kansas City, Missouri. And Kansas City was a lively center for African-American music, including jazz, blues, and gospel. So he was born right into it. Oh, yeah, pretty much. At least around it, you know. Well, we, that's so much we find in this era that there's not a whole lot of other like things that can be easily consumed. And so music is just encompasses so many people's lives at this point. Yeah. And so in 1931, when Charlie was 11, he got his first saxophone. His mother bought it for him to cheer him up for his father abandoning him. Oh, well, that that's nice. Yeah, not off to a great start so far. And supposedly he left because he was an alcoholic. Oh, well, I mean, that's nice-ish, I guess. Oh, yeah. Well, don't worry. Things will get better for him and then worse for him. I don't know. This seems to be a theme already. <laughs> And so after getting his saxophone, he really took to it. He just played and played and played. You know, he even took lessons from the school that he was at. And in 1935, by the time he was 15, he quit high school to become a full-time musician. And this is also kind of when he first started dabbling in drugs. Yeah, so he quote-unquote quit high school to become a full-time musician. Oh, yeah. And drug user. And then the next year, he married his childhood sweetheart, Rebecca Rufin, the first of his Three, kind of four wives. We'll get to that. Oh, well, sweetheart number one. Ding. Number one. So, yeah, like I said, he was just trying to be, you know, a touring musician, you know, a paid musician. From 1935 to 1939, he just played around Kansas City, Missouri, in, like, different nightclubs, you know, just playing with jazz, blue bands, whoever he could play with. 
Apparently, he joined a big band called Buster Professor Smith's band. Could not find anything about them, but that's a pretty kick-ass name. Buster Professor Smith's? Yeah. That's actually, yeah, that's really cool. It's kind <laughs> of a tongue twister, though. I know. It's a weird one. And when I brought it up, it was either like Buster Smith or Professor Smith or, you know, I, I could never find a Buster Professor. So I don't think they actually recorded anything. Oh, okay. So that's kind of weird. But in November 1936, he traveled with a group to the Lake of the Ozarks to play a club. And on this trip, there was kind of a car accident. <laughs> kind of a car accident? Kind of a car accident. Was he driving? Uh, I don't think so, but he did get severe injuries to his spine and ribs. Oh, well, that's got to suck. Two important things came out of this crash. The club owner had to buy him a new saxophone. <laughs> well, that's good. And the doctor put him on heroin to relieve his pain. Oh, that's not good. And he got extremely addicted to both. Oh, that's double not good. <laughs> well, kind of good. Well, and I didn't even know that doctors prescribed heroin back then, but apparently it was... Uh, invented in the 1880s, and it was introduced as a safe, non-addictive substitute for morphine. Oh, yeah, of course. Why wouldn't it be? <laughs> this is heroin, bitches. Yeah, it was known as diamorphine to, uh, at first. Why don't they still call it that? That's way cooler than heroin. <laughs> and so in 1936, a man named Jay McShann moved to Kansas City, Missouri to set up his own big band. And right away, Charlie Parker started playing with them. Played with a lot of other musicians that I've never heard of, though, so I'm not going to name them to you because it's a big, giant list. But it's he, a big band? It's a big band. But, <laughs> well, it was like, you know, a rotating cast of characters, too, and he didn't actually join on full-time until 1937. Ooh. But, they well, played, but seriously, like, big band shit at that time? That's that's a big thing. Yeah, they played, well, they played a lot of swing and blues numbers. Like, probably the most known song by these guys is Confessing the Blues. But Charlie Parker wasn't on this recording, so that's not a dude check out this song. That's a dude check out if you if you want, but don't check. It's not going on our Spotify list. Let's just say oh, that. Oh, well, denying the people of this. And so by 1940, Parker and his wife separated, and, you know, he just started writing for Jay McShann's band, just writing, like, leading sax sections. So number one goes down, and it's time to double down on the sax action. Just, keep, just start playing all the time. Oh, yeah. It's all right. Number two will probably be around the corner. And so this is also the first time when anybody ever heard Charlie play outside of a club. He played on the Wichita radio station. And so, you know, getting out to a bunch of people who never heard this kind of stuff before. and That's awesome. Like, he played live on the radio station? Yeah. That's fucking cool. Uh, that's something they don't do enough nowadays that I think might, like, bring back radio or something like that is where if they did, like, live band performances that were more intimate and stuff rather than just playing copied music, you know? Yeah, some of the smaller radio stations do that, the independent ones. Yeah, I know they do, but uh, I guess uh, maybe that's a that's a proof that my point is not true. People will probably will not go back to radio. <laughs> <laughs> And it was during this time when he actually picked up the nickname Yardbird. And nobody can really remember why, but for some reason they just started calling him Bird after a while. I mean, that's a cool name no matter which one you get, Bird or Yardbird. Yeah. Like, that's, you know, I mean, I, I know that some people are going to snicker about Bird kind of being a penile thing in the modern <laughs> age, but, like... I actually didn't even think about that. Yeah, but I, I, I don't think back then it was even, that was even a nomenclature, but that's just a cool nickname, Yardbird. Yeah. And so there's two possible reasons for the genesis of his name. One, he was free as a bird. 
Oh, well, that's something. Or two, and this one seems more believable to me, he accidentally hit a chicken, otherwise known as a yard bird, while driving on the tour bus with the band. Oh, that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, see, that's that's the that's how you earn a nickname in real life. You run yeah. over a, a chicken when you're driving the van, you're a chicken forever, or whatever it may be. This time it happened to be Yardbird. Yeah, I, for some reason that just seems to make more sense to me. Yeah, it's a re- that's a realistic, like honestly, and you know, on on on. Do check out this song. We have the rule. We always play into the folklore because the folklore is always better, and it means yeah. more than what actually happened there. And uh, so we're going to officially canonize it. And it's usually a better story anyway. Yeah, we're going to officially canonize it right now. Uh, It's because he ran over the bird, not the other thing. (laughs) (laughs) So he wasn't free as a bird, huh? No. (laughs) I don't want to say anything, but probably not. (laughs) And so eventually, Charlie Parker was actually able to get into the studio with Jay McShann's band. And he recorded two songs with him, two actual sax solos, I should say there. And one of them was Oh Lady Be Good, and the other one was called Honeysuckle Rose. Those are some good names. Yeah. I give the, like, five out of five stars on both of those names for song names in the era. Those are some cool names. And we actually made it to our first dude check out the song. And it's Honeysuckle Rose by the J. McShann Orchestra. You can kind of hear the sax in the background, but he actually does a sax solo in the middle of the song. It's pretty cool. Oh, yeah, these bebop solos are just fucking outrageous. Well, and he hadn't even got to bebop yet. Well, okay, yeah. I, I guess it's probably still swing at that point, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, even these even swing jazz, like, solos are still highly impressive. Don't oh, feel, yeah. Don't feel like at any point I'm talking down to swing because I will be referring, like, to the growth out of swing as bebop further, you know, further on. I don't mean it negatively. Like, swing is still highly impressive and amazing jazz itself. Oh, yeah. It's swing jazz is, you know, I mean, it's what got the twenties roaring. Yeah, exactly. And what what it it is honestly a more enjoyable music style, but bebop is a whole new monster. I don't know if any time in I I can't make this claim reasonably, but I can't think of a lot of like music styles that came out that were like so specifically like for the artist that as as bebop eventually became. Oh yeah, well I mean we'll get to this too, but when bebop first came out, a lot of people hated it. Yeah, because they just thought it was noise. They well, didn't understand it. And, and even the modern connotations, if you're a 90s kid, you, everybody knows the bebop, you know, uh, like cliche in cartoons where the guy's playing the, the bongos and doing p- voice poetry and they call that the bebop guy. Like, you know, that's 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 not very <laughs> Is that flattering. bebop or beatnik? I mean, oh, shit, that is beatnik. <laughs> you better edit all of that out then, I guess. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Don't leave me hanging. Well, and so the Jay McShann Orchestra, you know, they toured around essentially just the East Coast. They never really made it over to California or anything, but eventually they did a bunch of shows in New York. And in New York, Charlie Parker, you know, would find guys like Dizzy Gillespie. And he liked playing with them a little bit more. So, Oh, Dizzy Gillespie. <laughs> that guy's cool. Yeah, he's got some good songs. And so... After meeting Dizzy Gillespie and jamming with him, when it was time for the band to move on, Charlie stayed in New York. Oh, yeah. He found the area. Oh, yeah. He found his plays. Well, and it's funny, too. Like, the McShann band actually kept going till 1944, and it was only disbanded after McShann got drafted into World War II. (laughs) Well, shit. 
That's what shuts down your band real quick. Yeah, and then and sorry, then, boys, they gotta go fight in a war for a couple <laughs> years. Yeah, and then after that, he he after the war, he tried to get it back together. Never could never could get it going. Big band era was over. Yeah, I well, yeah, big band had ended, and this was a whole new era after World War Two. Oh yeah, it was definitely a time of uh, what you call it experimenting musically. Yeah, well, if you guys really like have followed the podcast so far, you know that in a few years they're going to experience that first uh, strike, which is really going to shut down this whole scene. Oh yeah. So this this whole scene is on like a doomsday clock, which is <laughs> sad, but it's also so interesting because like if you really watch this this sort of like artist for artist kind of representation might have been a lot more prevalent in our society if World War Two wasn't just like. No, nah, I don't think any of this is going to happen. And then the writer's strikes and... Or oh, not the yeah. Strike, the recording strikes. The strike. recording strikes, yeah. Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We've already covered that. No, no, no. We'll get to that affecting him. Oh, though. yeah. No, yeah, I, yeah. I'm just... I, I, I was speculating a little bit. Excuse me. <laughs> and please. Pat digresses. Yeah. <laughs> Return to your, uh, to your bio, Ian. And so in 1942, Parker married his second wife, Geraldine Scott. But financial stress created a rift between the two, and Parker turned to heroin for an escape. Uh, 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 don't do that. But and they didn't last very long. Yeah. It was like a super quick marriage. So like number months. two. No, yeah, number two was months. Boom. In and <laughs> out. It was number two, and then number two's gone. Yep. All right. Well, now <laughs> number three. Surely it's going to be I, right around the corner, it's right? Coming, it's coming out. Yeah, of course. So uh, move <laughs> it should be going great for him, right? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, he just played music. That's all he did, it seems like. And so in 1943, he actually played in Earl Hines band with Dizzy Gillespie. And Hines actually recalled how dedicated they were. He would say, they would carry exercise books with them and would go through the books in the dressing rooms when we were playing theaters. <laughs> so they're about to go on stage and they're going through like crazy exercises and stuff. Of course they would. And this is actually when Charlie Parker, for the first time in his life, ever played a, a tenor sax because Bud Johnson, the old tenor sax player, quit the band and they were on tour and they needed one. So he would just say, oh, I'm going to go play tenor. It's a bigger saxophone. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So uh, I was trying to remember because it's alto, which is the normal one, and then tenor is bigger than yeah. that. Yep. Uh, okay. I mean, I I, I know uh, like my music stuff, but unfortunately, the uh, how they put together the saxophones and like it, like actually what alto, soprano, like all the the classical stuff is a little lost on me still. Yeah. I'm I might resolve that at some point in this season just so I can feel more uh, more included in these moments. But it like it is really a. Uh, it's interesting with the the different sizes. Yeah. Uh, like, well, the keys are in different spots too. Yeah, exactly. And I, I imagine a bigger one would take more air. Yeah, exactly. I I, I mean, I, I would assume so. I played a, bla a bass clarinet once when I was in high school when I played regular <laughs> clarinet, and I don't I don't think that went well. <laughs> well, Charlie didn't actually end up liking this too. He was heard saying, "Man, this thing is too big. I just can't feel it." Oh. But you know. As Parker's career seems to go, for the most part, the Heinz band broke up. And then he joined another band for brief spells, but then he just ended up moving to Chicago, where he joined another band. And that didn't last long either, but then he just started playing with Dizzy Gillespie in the 52nd Street Clubs. You know, just them doing their own thing. 
And it was around this time when he first met Miles Davis. Oh, oh, we all know Miles Davis. Oh, yeah. And apparently, they had kind of an uneasy relationship. And you'll figure that out, like why that would be later. But during this time, it was Dizzy Gillespie, Miles Davis, and Charlie Parker. And they were creating a new style of music. And that music, yeah, it was bebop. Oh. But the biggest problem, the year was 1944. And you know what was going on in 1944? Suddenly, there was no more recording. Yep, they were inventing all this new music, and they couldn't even record it. (laughs) That is just absolutely asinine, especially since bebop is just so amazing and unique. Uh, I'm not going to dive too much into it, but I I actually did. (laughs) I researched a fair amount about bebop doing this. Oh, man. Uh, I bet that was interesting. Yeah, it it was highly interesting. And honestly, a lot of the music theory stuff that they used is extremely heady. And I had to go through multiple sources to even understand what was kind of represented in any fashion. Oh, I bet, dude. Like, and it's nothing like other forms of really complex music, like classical or, you know, other sheet music complex styles. Yeah. It is more in complex in its harmonies and how things are played together because the music expects you to improvise. Right. It provides you like tones and the music that they provided to each other was simple tones. Like they would they would kind of have the beat and uh, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. So (laughs) let's bring it back there. Let's bring it back. So. First of all, this whole thing comes out of artists after the clubs close. So the clubs were playing, all the dancers were coming in, they were playing swing jazz. This was what was making the bucks. And wait, so did these clubs close because of World War II? No, so it was after, like, after hours. Oh, So not not after they physically closed, but, like, after hours when the musicians were done doing their job. I gotcha. So during the day, these music, or the day in quotation marks, which was probably the early evening... The, or the early morning. Yeah. Well, so we, we'll begin to understand where this negative connotation comes from in a second. So they they would get together. You know, all the shows would start about, you know, seven, eight. People would be out there and they'd dance and they're doing the swing. And the, the, all the big bands would do their swing thing. All the mu- musicians would make their money and the club would close and they'd all have, you know, whatever drinks that they would have or whatever, you know, heroin that they may be doing. <laughs> well, apparently heroin was very prevalent in the jazz scene around this era, too. Yeah, so whatever whatever special narcotics they might be getting onto after the, the buzz, they go to these jam sessions, and this is where Bebop is born, is these jam sessions. Right. And so one of the things that was told to me through multiple sources but has no actual source, so I think we're going to put this in the folklore category where I'm going to tell you because it's folk or folklore important for you to know this, but I'm not going to tell you that it's the truth because I can't promise that. But it was said that Charlie Parker was kicked out of several of these sessions for not being good enough. Oh, really? Yes. So uh, the what, what they would do to test musicians is they would play classical like uh, standards. Okay. But then each round, they would move up a step and increase the tempo on Ooh. like a standard chart. So it would be that they would be playing these classic standards that everyone could play and the whole room would play. And then they would start playing and they'd get it going. And then if you couldn't keep up, you just stopped playing. And by the end of it, they would be going so fast with these classical tunes in these like weird, like upward, you know, all the way up in the highest. And, you know, I'm sure they went back down if they hit the top or something like that. There was probably, you know, different ways of doing it. Right. But what they were doing was they were experimenting with different ways of uh, like musical phrasing. Oh, huh. That's interesting. 
So you said that Charlie Parker supposedly got kicked out of a few of these? Yeah. Could that possibly be, though, maybe him using heroin? Because it's not exactly a drug known for giving you energy. Well, exactly. And so I, I would assume that this had an a, you know, angle to play. Anybody who's a musician and, you know, even drinks. If yeah. you even drink and you play music and you've gone and done a show, we've all been in the point where we've been like, all right, it's cool if I have, you know, two beers could, to get me going. You know, yeah. I'm going to have more presence on stage. I'm going to be rolling. It's going to be good. I'm going to be loose. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to be loose. It'll be good. But everyone knows that one day where you had the extra half a beer or whatever, you know, for whatever reason, it didn't sit right. You're a little dozy. And you, you have that moment where you're like, oh, shit. Like, I'm not going to be able to do what I'm expected to do right now. You know what I mean? And oh, yeah. Every musician does that, and that's what improvisation is, and that's how you get, you know, the the doors laying on the ground screaming and want, you know. The right. doors? You mean Jim Morrison? Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I would assume that they were all screaming and writhing on the ground. That's I assume, though, like the guys, the guy, uh, Ray Manzarek playing the keyboards wasn't lying on the ground, though. <laughs> 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 LA woman! Yeah, exactly. So, but you know what I mean. Like, the drugs were always representative of the improvisation, the the emotional side of it. And by no means, don't take this, uh, anyone out there to say that I'm saying take drugs to play music, because I'm actually saying the opposite. Because what we all really learn if we play enough music is, you know when you play the best? When you have zero beers. When you have a good night's sleep and you have some cereal, I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm not, uh, so don't take anything I'm saying as like, a go out and do heroin and play bebop because it's the 2020s, not the 1920s. Pat says, get a good night rest and eat a good breakfast. Yep, eat a good breakfast and then play music. And that's how you be a badass musician. And that's how you invent music, not the way that these guys are doing it. So <laughs> don't, don't follow. Either way, let's get into the musical portions of this to get me off this terrible ride, yeah? I guess we can. All right, so Charlie Parker was so mad about getting kicked out of these jam sessions, he decided that he was going to fix it. Oh, really? It is said, and like I said, this is where the folklore portion comes in, 18 hours a day for a questionable amount of time. And this is how comes, long he played? This is what his practice regimen was. Wow. He went home because he got kicked out, and he was never going to get shown up by musicians like that again. If anything, he was going to be the last guy playing, playing at a ridiculous tempo where he's shredding whatever, whatever fucking standard they want that day, and everyone's just going to stand in awe, and that's what Charlie... And okay, so that's a little bit of a dramatization, but that's what I'm feeling, because he comes back. And what he comes back with is arguably what bebop is. He has changed the rules of certain phrasings and musical like rhythms right. to adjust to essentially make it harder for people to play, but also make it sound more technically creative. So is this where like him playing the chromatic scale comes into this? Oh, yeah. So so these chromatic uh, fills and rides, as they call them, and whatever other forms. Uh, if you're actually like a jazz music theory guy, please yeah. don't get mad at me for trying to dumb this down for us who maybe don't even know anything about music theory. So I don't know anything about jazz music theory. Yeah, that, it's, it, this that is this stuff is insane. I honestly spent a lot of hours just trying to get my head around it, and I already know like basic music theory enough to like play several instruments. So. Yeah, and so if anybody doesn't know, yeah, there's twelve notes in Western music. Yep, and in a typical scale, you use seven notes. Yeah, a scale in quotation marks is seven tones. Yeah, seven tones, and 
A chromatic scale uses all 12 of them. And if you just play those, it doesn't really make sense. Like in Chroma- a- Everybody's played a chromatic scale. Everybody in the world who's ever stood next to a piano played a chromatic scale. That's when you didn't know what button to press, and you pressed any button. That's a chromatic scale because every single button is in the or scale. Or you just press each one. Yep. In Randomly in any order. Yep. Chromatic scale. You're playing an actual musical it scale. It is all 12 notes. Play it however you want. And and a little bonus feature, if you just played the white notes, you were playing bass C major. Ba-boom. Ba-boom. So you might have played some real music and not known it. Either way, we're not, we're not here to teach me basic music theory. We're here to talk about some really fucked up advanced shit. So first thing to go was the drummer. So... Whoever he was jamming with in these practice sessions, he he began to. Uh, you you had said some names earlier. I'm sure some of them had have responsibility for this, and I don't have names because there's no information on when this actually came out. Well, there's so many names in jazz too, and a lot of them you never heard of. So I did skip over like the majority of the names I've seen. Yeah, exactly. So X rhythm guy uh, was playing with Charlie Parker, and Charlie Parker's thing was like he was like, okay, we're gonna change it up. So instead of on the on the ride which was traditionally in swing done with the bass beat or the bass drum. They yep. go to boom, 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 kind of just keep it, you know, riding and going. He, he's wanted that with the hi-hat or the, what is it, the ride symbol? The ride symbol. Yeah, so the cha-cha-cha-cha. So this is where you get like Hat's the, totally not a drummer, by the way. Yeah, totally not a drummer. I'm sorry. I play several instruments, but my percussion is, is not even there. I can play a timpani. Boom. <laughs> but either way. So, uh <laughs> Uh, with the ride symbol, that's where the really the heavy ride came in, and they stopped that with the bass drum. The bass drum started to become accents and became more control of the creative side of the drummer, allowing a lot more creative like play with the drummer because it became the right side freedom, and then the left side played everything else, and the bass drum kept the rhythm, and so they they became these like really syncopatic or syncopatic uh, different r- rhythms rather than trying to. I guess, calm it down as they would have typically. I, I might be stretching a little bit there because, I, like I said, my, my percussion knowledge is pretty slim. But what it did was it changed the way the drummer could play and it allowed the drummer to improvise a lot more along with the music. Next thing to go, so this is, what, this is where we get into Charlie Parker. He says, seventh, like these, these seventh arpeggios. So one, one of the things that these swing jazz guys do is they do an arpeggio. Arpeggio yep. is just where you play up and down through like a chord but you play them as, as like a scale. Yep. That's the easiest way for me to say it. So you, you play... But you play the notes individually instead of like, say, strumming a whole chord. Yes, exactly. Instead of playing them all in unison, you play them in an order, but you play the chord that way, and that's called an arpeggio. And so typically they would go one, three, five, seven, five, three, one, or whatever the, the improvisation between the, the groups were. Right. Charlie Parker was like... No. He says... I'm going to go with some extremely difficult transitions and chaotic melodies, and I'm going to start on a three, and I'm going to end on a nine. And then I'm going to come back in on the 11, and then I'm going to troll back down, but I'm going to use a chromatic to come down. And it's going to be so complex that musicians are going to be like, wait a second, what? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, because I, as this piano player, watched a couple of bebop guys play piano, and I'm like, dude, he's playing any fucking note. He's literally (laughs) just winging it. Well, and a lot of times what they would do is during like a solo they would solo on whatever note they wanted but as long as they hit that root note or the third or fifth on a chord you know the, as long as they hit that on time 
they were still considered to be playing in key. Yeah, exactly. It's, so it was all about the at the end or the beginning or wherever your roundup was or your 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 meeting point with your rhythm, just as long as you hit the same tone at that moment. At the moment that you needed to hit it at. Yeah, exactly. So you were still in key. But everything between then and there started to become more freeform. And I hope this isn't becoming too complicated for you guys. I understand what Pat's saying, so I'm just hoping this is good. <laughs> It's pretty difficult. I mean, it took me a little while to understand Bebop myself, so. Either way, they, they decided at this point that there were certain times in music where you didn't have to play the scale anymore. And that's where we become these, these chromatic rides, where when you're supposed to technically, you know, be like, you know, seven, six, five, four, three, or whatever the, the ride may be, at that point, you could leave the scale and play just kind of whatever note you want as long as you're just like doing a trill and so yeah. it becomes this chaotic mess where not everything is harmonious and you know these, you got these diatonics and these weird like off bass beats and some of the other uh, artists of the time had their own specific styles we're not covering anyone else tonight so i'm not going to get too into it but everyone had their own thing right like some of the other guys use a lot of specific chords and a lot of specific styles and like just what i'm covering is what charlie parker did yeah and this is around the time when they got into all the crazy chord changes too, like where they'd use like eleven different chords and stuff like that, right? Yeah, and this is this is where it really steps up. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna do everyone a little favor out here. I'm gonna I'm gonna teach everyone how to play bebop and however long it takes me to do these five bullet points. Here's how you do it: fast, complex rhythms and no musical clears. If you don't know musical clear is a musical clear is when you give other musicians time to get into the rhythm if they're not already there. It's, <laughs> uh, clears are like... That sounds dangerous. <laughs> yeah, so so playing with no musical clears means you don't give the people playing with you a chance to make sure they're on rhythm. There's no like long spaces in your music where you can come back, come back in on them, and there's no long spaces in their music where they can come back in on you. Everybody, and if you don't know what this is, that'd be like holding the same note and everybody can kind of gather back in and find their place. Yeah, exactly. Or or like, you know, during the rhythm, I feel like I'm getting behind. I can just strum and stop and then listen to what everyone else is playing and come back in, you know, boom, doo, 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 you know, that's that's frowned upon already. Yep. So number two, chaotic and asymmetric writing that moves in these strong and arcing angles. And so here's where it gets a little weird. This is when you go really far up a scale so far that you go up into the next uh, octave of the scale. Gotcha. And don't come all the way back down. You end the phrase way up there, and then the beginning of the next phrase continues either from that point or the point where you originated from, making the music feel extremely jarring. This asymmetric writing is what you feel like in these... Uh, these crazy classical pieces that go like, you know, the p the right hand of the piano just goes insanely off in the wrong direction sometimes. And you're like, oh, what is going on there? That is kind of this phrasing. You don't have to be clear. You don't have to play in, in harmony with everyone else. That's rule number three. This, oh, man, I did that for years. Yeah, I mean, so if you suck, that's awesome. That's what you got rule three going for you already. You don't have to play directly in harmony with everybody else in this style. The dissidence of the... Two, three, and the, the, you know, these tones that don't match each other don't sound good together. Yeah. That is part of the, the, that portion of the tension of the writing. And so when you have that descent, what we talked about earlier, yep. that's when you throw those, those weird mixed tones in there where it's going to be sloppy and muddy, where you think almost as a musician, like to play it, it feels wrong. Right. Like that doesn't, oh, feels yeah. gross. 
Yeah, what I've learned about bebop kind of goes against all of my music knowledge that I've gathered over the years, too. Yep. And uh, here's where that like jam band portion comes in with uh, with issue number four, rule number four here, is it's all about alternating solos and walking solos. So right. that, that means the piano guy is going to do the, the bass with his left hand, and he's going to do... Whatever the crazy bebop, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> whatever the crazy bebop solo is. I think I nailed that. Yeah, that was that was great. That was four out of ten. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> when he when he finally gets done with his piece, it's not designed to move to a cooling medium where it's quiet and goes down. He's gonna get done, and the saxophone's gonna immediately jump in there, and he's right. gonna ram it harder than the last guy, and. You know, the, we, everybody who listens to this loves our imitation of. of, of <laughs> I swear to God, we actually are musicians, and yeah. we just are terrible at mimicking instruments. I guess, whatever. I mean, you don't have to believe me. I don't need your loves. <laughs> <laughs> I love you guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fifth and final rule. All right. This one is for the guys who uh, who have kind of been following a little bit tighter. So, in swing, it was often appropriate to start at the root or the third or the seventh. These classic, simple, like, this is where I want to play if I want to play a trill down or up or whatever it may be. Yep. Bebop doesn't do that, dog. They don't accentuate certain notes in a chord? They do. They, they, they do accentuate, but they don't start at the root and they don't end similarly you know the, these styles were not necessarily ending on the root every phrase but gotcha. they, were, they were playing other notes in the chord other than the root yeah but you know that's or no no this is during the soloing oh okay yeah yeah so during the soloing they would they would play the you know from starting from the first position and play up the the scale but they would return to a reasonable place within this the scale like a one or a three somewhere where they would start something yep. that sounded harmonically good with bebop you start on the three you start on the five you start on the seven and you can end nine eleven somewhere up really high somewhere off the scale which if you follow the nine eleven that's not like you don't cycle the scale up like you would typically when you hit the root you know what i mean the nine and the eleven and all that shit is out of place you know it, it feels really strange and so that's where you end your phrasing Oh, okay. Gotcha. And so that's where that's where these dissident like bebop kind of ends go. Do you know where the name bebop came from? I don't actually. So of course I'm not gonna do any heady claims. This of course comes with the the disclaimers it always does. We go with the folklore, everything else can fuck off. If you have evidence otherwise, we'll talk about it. But the tones that came at the end in bebop was this traditional tritone. These three notes a whole tone apart that would go bebop, bebop. Oh, and so it was these these last two notes in the phrase that was that almost became like the scenes, like like the signature yeah, on exactly. the music. It's the signature on the last bit of the music is these, this bebop note, and that's how you go back into your first phrase. So if you're trying to round up, you know we we sh- we taught you how to go up and we taught you how to go around. If you're trying to finish up, bebop, huh? I never would have put it together like that. Bebop. <laughs> So now getting back to Charlie Parker, 1944, they invented bebop. Couldn't record it, couldn't really do anything with it. But 1945, that was a different story. He started his own band while also playing in a band with Dizzy Gillespie. He also recorded a bunch of stuff during this time. 
with his own band, with Dizzy Gillespie's band, another swing jazz musician named Red Norvo. Red Norvo is a cool name. Yeah. I like that. It is a good name. Good jazz name, too. Yeah. I, feel, I would trust that guy in jazz. Well, and so, yeah, they could finally start releasing Bebop. New wave, new music. People are going, what's this? And out of these recordings, there came some pretty awesome songs. I would assume so. Everybody had a year to train. And so, dude, check out this song. Well, it's these songs, really. Oh, yes. Give and, it to me, Daddy. All right. Dizzy Gillespie's got one called Salt Peanuts. And there's no lyrics other than they're just going, Salt Peanuts, Salt Peanuts, and they just shred. Hell yeah, dude. Oh, yeah. Oh, I fucking love that. And another Dizzy Gillespie song, Sean F, spelled S-H-A-W-N-U-F-F. Sean F? Sean F. Sean F. Some of Charlie Parker's own stuff. You got Billy's Bounce and Coco. Dude, check out these songs. Billy's Bounce? Billy's oh, that, Bounce. That sounds awesome. I didn't run across that in mine. Yeah, these songs oh. are these songs are really like hard driving, straightforward, you know, they're going for it type of jazz stuff. Oh yeah, like the hard rhythm. Yeah. Most of these are pretty up pace too. Like it's good. Yeah, I must say I was not a big fan of like jazz stuff coming into this, but uh, I I gained a whole new appreciation for it. Oh yeah, we're neither of us are big jazz guys, which is whenever we do a jazz person, it's always a challenge for us. You know, we we just don't know jazz. We don't really listen to it. We know blues and we know folk music. You know, we can talk that all day. But jazz for us is new, and that's part of the reason why I like doing this podcast though. We're learning new stuff every time we do a new episode. Yeah, exactly. We're out here uh, grinding it and learning new music stuff. And honestly, like, uh, I feel I found myself while I'm researching for the podcast, I'm looking at stuff that I'm not going to use. I learned so much just about music while I'm researching. Yeah. Like, I could never go into everything that I learned in this. You know, I learned essentially how to play bebop. Not that I'm going to use it. Not that I my hand would even do some of the things that are expected. <laughs> But, yeah, that would be some difficult stuff to play. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I, my hand doesn't stretch that way anymore. I'm sorry. Well, and so because of all these recordings coming out, Parker's band, Dizzy Gillespie's band, they weren't high demand in California. So you know what they did? They did a six-week tour through California. Aha, jazz tour. Oh, yeah. There's a slight problem, though. There's all uh, what, heroin. I'm sure this has a lot to do with it. <laughs> Charlie Parker would frequently disappear when they had gigs to play. Called it. And, you know, kind of midlife hell on Dizzy. You know, they got gigs to play. Need the saxophone player, right? Yeah, where's, where's that member of our band? <laughs> and so Dizzy actually managed his way around this problem. On the road, he started taking a vibraphonist, Milt Jackson, with them to sub in for Charlie when he was AWOL. Oh, my God. They brought an extra member just because you're such a piece of shit? Yeah. I mean, not, not trying to so be a So, I think but... we got an asshole spotlight here. Yeah, I, okay. Being a band guy, and I've been in so many bands. Dude, Charlie Parker, asshole spotlight all up on you right now. You show up to gigs. Like, <laughs> I've dealt with a lot of bullshit being in a lot of bands. There's one thing you do. What do you do? You show up, and you show up early. Yeah, you show up to gigs. You like, show up on time. On time is early. I would rather have you mispractice in a gig, and I'm not telling you to mispractice. Nobody Don't out there miss. That. Nobody Don't out there mispractice. Unless you want to get kicked out of a band real quick. Or just get kicked. Well, and so do you even know what a vibraphone is? Oh I actually had to look this up. 
Uh, uh, you're calling me out here? I have no idea what a vibraphone is. I, I feel like it's a synthesizer, maybe? No. So the vibraphone is from the subfamily of percussion. It consists of metal bars, and they are struck holding two or four mallets. So like a xylophone? Almost like a xylophone. You know what the difference is? What? Xylophone is made out of wooden bars. They're thicker, but shorter. A vibraphone is made out of aluminum bars, and the bars are paired with a resonator tube. And these tubes have a butterfly valve in the upper end and are driven by a motor. Like an electric motor? Yeah, like an electric motor, you know, kind of a, like, just a way to <laughs> resonate it more, you know? Well, yeah, I've played organ before, so I know, like, what elect- like what it is electricity driven, but that's just so interesting. I've never even heard of that, like a xylophone yeah, that's electrically driven? It's, it's an alu- aluminum xylophone with a resonator, essentially. I think I found my next retardedly stupid instrument that I have to purchase for no fucking reason. Please do, but don't ever play it around me. Why, is it loud? I would imagine so. <laughs> Louder than a xylophone is. Well, I would assume so, but I already play accordion, and accordion's fucking loud. Well, and so with this tour, they also played with the Philharmonic. All right, I'm calling you out right now. What's a Philharmonic, dude? I, I've heard I've heard of Seattle Philharmonic and like London Philharmonic. I'm sure there's like a New York Philharmonic, but what is what is that? Is it a company? No, so Philharmonic usually just means two orchestras from the same city coming together. So really, really large orchestra. Lots of people. Oh, like multiple orchestras working together. Yeah. Oh, and the reason why it's a big deal is because they were uh, specially invited on, right? Oh, so like the Philharmonic is like the the all-star game? Yeah. Oh, okay. And so they're like, we like these guys. We're going to invite you to come in and play this set. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Don't be fucked up on heroin. (laughs) Well... Be reasonably fucked up on heroin. Parker, you know, in, in his true fashion, he showed up late. Yep. Of course he did. That's <laughs> And he walked on stage during a piano solo. Dizzy asked him where he was, and Parker just started playing, didn't even answer him. Oh, yes. Classic heroin. You know where he was? Heroin? Probably. <laughs> like, you, I don't know. I, I'm... I wish I would have known how much heroin was going to be in this episode because we would have done an asshole spotlight segment because, dude. We heroin, did an asshole spotlight segment, like, right before well, this. No, no, I know. We we impromptued it. I'm just saying, dude, at, uh, don't do heroin. Like, don't do heroin. Like, it is a bad life decision. It just turns you into an asshole. Like, there's nothing good that comes out of it. Like, I'm sure, it doesn't even feel good after a while, I'm sure. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's probably nothing worse than being a heroin. Don't do it. Don't do heroin. And show up to band practice and this- shows on time <laughs> early. Dude, check out this song advice. Don't do heroin. Show up to your gigs on time. Show up to practice. <laughs> and don't do other drugs. Like, okay, we're not. Okay, just moving forward. God damn it. And so after the Philharmonic, this kind of was the end of the tour. Dizzy went back to the East Coast. Parker stayed in California. So is it over? No, no, it's definitely not over, but things get a little weird. Not quite yet, but things will get a little weird here in a second. And so Parker started playing with Dial, a record company, and with this hot new jazz music, you know, they started hosting sessions that they would record. And one session... So we're still in the bebop heyday then. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. I, oh, I, I, yeah. Was, like, I was feeling kind of like a downturn no, vibe, the, but we're still going, huh? No, 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 no. The bebop heyday lasts for a little while. And so, at a session in March, 
Yeah, that included like Miles Davis, Lucky Thompson, Dodo Marmorosa. They uh, cut some songs that Parker has become really famous with. Yardbird Suite and A Night in Tunisia. <laughs> they named a song after him? Yep. Oh, my God. Could you imagine playing that song alone without him because he's late because he's on heroin? <laughs> they probably put that later in the set just for him. We'll end with it. And if he doesn't and, show up, we're not playing. And these are actually songs that really helped propel Bebop, even though, you know, Charlie Parker had you know a bunch of drug issues. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess that's accepted just as long as you're making good music, right? Other major stars of the next hundred years. <laughs> and this leads me to my next dude. Check out this song. Both those songs, Yardbird Suite and A Night in Tunisia. Both Woo! good songs. They're check them out. Five out of seven stars. Do it. They're really good. And here's where things start getting a little interesting. In July, Parker's hookup for heroin, he got busted. Oh, no. He had no way hiccup. He got no way to get heroin. That's like (laughs) red alert, dude. So you know what he started doing instead? Oh man. What? Drinking alcohol by the bucket. By the bucket? By the bucket. Like specifically by the bucket or like That's just what it said in my research. Oh well oh my god, by the bucket. And so during a recording session for Dial, Parker was said to have drank a quart of whiskey. Ooh, a quart of whiskey. Yeah. I've done that, and that's not fun, man. That's, oh, no. That's hey, bad times. And this is before he started recording. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was said that on Dial Volume 1, the name of the album, Parker missed most of the first two bars of his first chorus on the track, Max Making Wax. <laughs> and when he finally did come in, he swayed around wildly and even once spun all the way around away from his microphone. Oh, dude. That's that's straight up like that's that's a fucking like drunk out of your mind. Oh man. yeah. In the next tune, Lover Man, the producer Ross Russell had to physically support Parker to even play on that song. <laughs> but he still played? <laughs> he still played. Oh my god. That that's almost champ move if it wasn't such a piece of shit move. <laughs> and on the final song named Bebop, he begins the solo with a solid first eight bars. Bebop. On the second eight bars, though, he begins to struggle. And one of the guys in the studio, desperate to get him to keep playing, shouts, Blow! (laughs) And so then he's like, oh, right, I'm supposed to play. And he he keeps playing again. (laughs) Like he almost forgot where he was for a second. Oh, my God, dude. And all of these versions made the album. Of course they did. Honestly, like, okay, so you you take this kind of out of character sense and you you feel where it, like, led to. You know what I mean? Like, people yelling during live recordings is so authentic. Yeah. It is such a good thing. It's such a thing, like, I've used, you've used, everyone has used. Well, I don't even think that it never picked up on the mic because you can actually find these recordings because they redid them years later. But you can actually find these recordings where he was. Can you find the place? Like, the actual, like, moment where he passes out and all that? No, it actually sounds clean. That's the crazy part. And so probably because there's so much going on, they were able to cover up over him when he was screwing up. You know, that's, that's what I imagine. But, yeah, like, I've listened to these recordings. You can't even tell he's drunk. Oh, my God, dude. Could you imagine being so fucking good in an instrument? You were blackout drunk, can't even stand, but you're still just like... Well, and because of all his drunken antics, Parker was actually quite embarrassed by these recordings and told him not to release it. 
And they did anyway. Well, yeah, because fuck that, you drunk piece of shit. Sorry, yeah. sorry, Charlie Parker. I, I mean, I, we're doing a biography on you. I'm not trying to talk shit, but dude. <laughs> Sounds like some talking shit to me. Dude, I'm kind of offended by that. Like I said, just show up to stuff. Well, and this leads me to my next dude. Check out this song, Max Making Wax. Not only is it a great title, it is a great song. I wonder if there's some, like, magic editing going on in there, too. You know what I mean? Like, multiple takes. Like, <laughs> could you imagine the yeah, bad takes? Yeah, I don't takes? know. I think these were all, you know, like, they kind of screwed around for a little while, came up with some good chord progressions, and then jammed on it and just hit record. That's pretty much, like, I think what they did. Because this is the 40s. I mean, they're, you know, a lot of, like, the recording magic that happened didn't really come around until, like, the 50s. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. So they, they would have to play the whole song over, and I think that's probably what they opted to do for a lot of this stuff because <laughs> where'd the, maybe, sax- or where'd they the just saxophone w- go? Maybe, or they just went with it, and mm, that's the cut. And we talked about it earlier. It's all about that the different solos rotating in and out. Maybe they were just like, fuck it, skip the saxophone, yeah, no. dude. He's too fucked up. <laughs> well, and maybe that's why there's only three songs mentioned of him in this recording session, too. Yeah, exactly. So, like, the important stuff gets out there, but the rest of it, he's just too fucked up to do anything with. Well, that's rough, dude. And so, after all this, this drunken escapades, Parker kind of ends up in the Camarillo State Mental Hospital. Wait, (laughs) hold on. You go from recording too drunk to play to straight to mental hospital? Well, I think a big part of it was he was probably going through withdrawals from heroin. And then on top of that, he was just boozing himself to the point of oblivion. And he's already an emotional musician who's like doing super artsy fringe stuff, which already fucks your brain up a little bit. Yeah. And so with all that going on and that, I don't think people knew how to deal with him. They're like going to the hospital. Well, I mean, it's it's kind of a more common thing is if you don't follow, quote unquote, society in this area, you do kind of get just put away in a mental hospital. Yeah, it was a lot easier to put people in a mental hospital back then. I feel like I'd probably be locked up. I don't I don't know. I'd lock you up. I'm gonna lock you up. (laughs) <laughs> and that's why we're doing this podcast together nobody tell anybody because next week yeah, it's keep it be, a secret ne- next week it'll be me solo as uh do check out this song and i'll i'll make up a good excuse for ian's absence <laughs> well and so he actually spent six months in the camarilla state mental hospital but by february 1947 he was able to get out and move back to the east coast and then hit the studio with miles davis oh my god miles Yep, and they recorded some great songs in this session, relaxing at Camarillo, you know, in ode to him, kind of being locked up in a mental hospital, Stupendous, Cool Blues, and Bird's Nest. There's that bird again. There's that bird again. And I actually got another dude check out this song from this, Relaxing at Camarillo. Oh, Relaxing at Camarillo. And I don't know why they called it that, because the sound of this, it doesn't seem like he was relaxing too much. Well, I mean, I guess relaxing might be the only thing you get to do, though. Yeah, maybe. Unless they're, you know, giving you shock therapy. Yeah, well, I mean, it depends on how crazy you are. I'm not going to... I don't know anything about Charlie Parker's time in in his mental institution. They kept doing shock therapy well into the 60s. We're going to get to an artist who was truly fucked up by shock therapy. Oh, really? Is that coming later this season? Not this season. This is a couple seasons down the road. Oh, that's a long time. Oh, you don't even know who it is yet. I don't think I even told you we're covering this guy either. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't know at all, but I'm still sad that it's going to take so long for shock therapy to come back into the season. Well, this is my secret, and you guys are going to have to wait to find out. Oh, my God. Well, and so 
after this recording session, all Charlie Parker did essentially basically was just record and perform. Like he just went straight for it. He pretty much just stayed sober during this. He produced so much music. So like, this is his resurgence then. Uh, yeah, basically like some great songs came out of this. Some great live recordings came out of this. Like his next session, he formed his own band with Miles Davis, Juke Jordan, Tommy Potter, and the famous jazz drummer, Max Roach. I don't know if you know him, but he's known among jazz drummers. I have no idea what the name is, but I'm making a note right now because I'm going to find out next week. Max Roach, look him up. Ooh, he sounds fancy. They did a session with that, did some more sessions with random other musicians. He even played Carnegie Hall with Dizzy. Oh, Carnegie Hall. You know you've made it big when you play Carnegie Hall. And in 1948, he married Doris Snyder. Number three? Number three. Oh, that took way longer than I thought. Yeah. That was a few years. A few years. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's too too heroined up to get ladies, I would assume. Well, of course, you know, eventually he went back to heroin, and at some point, it broke up. Oh, God exactly... damn it, number three. Yeah, I, could, I couldn't find an exact date, but I'm going to give you that caveat because I don't know when they actually broke up, so at some point they do. In 1948, more sessions, more recordings at Carnegie Hall, Two times, in fact, in this year, in February and in September. Even recorded with another orchestra, and that album's called Charlie Parker with Strings. With Strings? With Strings. That sounds cool. So it was a whole orchestra performance, and he got the name recognition. woo You know what else happened? They opened up a club in New York after him. They called it Birdland. Oh, yeah, Birdland. And in June 1950, he recorded with Dizzy Gillespie. And Thelonious Monk. Oh, Thelonious Monk, another big name. I'm surprised oh, yeah. it took this long for him to actually come in. Yeah, well, it won't be the last time he records with him, but probably the most notable. Probably not the last time we talk about him, even probably in this season. Probably not. And this recording was called Bird and Diz. And after this recording, they toured Europe. And despite Parker being addicted to drugs and alcohol, he made it to every show. He was able to keep it together. Life's going great. And Parker's band at the time, they even had a young John Coltrane playing with them. Oh, Coltrane. Yeah, so more name dropping there. Oh, name dropping. fuck, dude. Well, and this is why, like, if you don't know jazz, like, you'll never hear Charlie Parker. But Charlie Parker influenced so many people that it is ridiculous. Yeah, and even the name John Coltrane. I'm not even a big jazz guy. I know the name. Yeah, I'm not I'm not a jazz guy by any means, but Coltrane is that's name recognition right there, man. Oh yeah. Just like Felonious Monk. And also in nineteen fifty, he began living with a dancer named Chan Richardson. Chan Richardson. Yeah, and male, female? Female. She number four? Well, sort of. Three so, three point five. Yeah. They never actually got married, but she did end up taking his last name. Oh, well that's that's four. Yeah. They never officially got married, but he always considered them to be married. And that's why at the beginning of the podcast, I said three, four, uh, we'll get into it. 3.5. Yeah. And so they ended up having kids. They had a daughter in 1951 and a son in 1952. Oh, so he almost gets like the happy family ending and everything? Almost. Oh, no, I don't like the way you said that. In March 1954... Charlie's daughter dies from pneumonia. Oh, God damn it. And after this, he starts spiraling out of control. Let me guess, heroin? 
heroin, alcohol, whatever he could get his hands on. Oh man, this fucking grief cycle with with drug addicts is it's painful to watch. It really is. It's it's rough. Yeah, and he did recording sessions during this time. Nothing good. There's yeah. only one good thing he even did of this time. It's a best of live stuff called Jazz at Massey Hall. And it's actually really good. You'd still find it online. I'll probably link a few songs on Spotify. But that's it. I mean, after that, he went on a downward spiral. Things got so bad, in fact, he was even banned from Birdland. Banned from a club named after him. Yep. Oh, fuck. And God, that is so sad. Like... Like I said, he's got the asshole spotlight following him this whole... Like, he he, he picked it up in these... There's yep. kind of an asshole spotlight aura around him. Yeah, like, he's he's picked it up in, the, in his 20s and just carried it through his whole life. But even, like, this situation... Like, that sort of situation... This one's kind of understandable to spiral out of control, though. You lose your daughter and... I mean... That she is, was three. She was yeah. three years old. That that is That is horrifying and terrible, but... Honestly, if you weren't a drug addict to begin with in your life, you wouldn't spiral to being a drug addict if you're, you know, when your daughter died. So, I mean, I I don't necessarily, even now, nobody spiraled to drug use. If you got something terrible going on, talk to somebody about it, you know, be a decent person. But fuck, man. Yeah. That, that hurts my feelings. Well, and so by September 1954, he couldn't take it anymore. He attempted suicide twice by drinking iodine. Iodine? Oh, dude. I don't think that'll kill you. It's oh. not good for you, though. It is definitely not good for you. D- dude. Oh, fuck. And so that landed him back in a mental hospital. No, number two. Number two. What year is this? This was still 1954. Oh, so this is... this is, And this is much worse because now we're talking about when Bebop isn't popular. He's no, he's it's no, starting to wane, yeah, but, you know, no, they still got their fans. He can still make a living doing this. Well, of course, but I, I think it's almost more sad that he's, you know, in the rotting away kind of in the mental institution because of all this circumstantial slash self-circumstantial bullshit. But he does end up getting out, and he does start getting his life back on track. In fact, his life started going so good, by March 1955, he even booked a show... Birdland again. They let him come back and play. Oh, so you get unbanned from the club named after you. Woo! Yeah, but a week before he could play this show, he died at the home of Baroness Pananica de Casnorter. Um, <laughs> I know, sounds like something Monica went by in Friends. I know, but he died on March 12th, 1955 in the exact same place. That felonious monk would also pass away at 27 years later. Like the same building? Same room. Oh, dude. Okay, so that's... Hold on. I want to approach this correctly because that is amazing and terrible at the same time. So this... We we at Do Check Out This Song have had the same theme that I brought up so many fucking times. That folklore. That... That right there, ladies and gentlemen, that is real, serious folklore. Do you think when you go to that room late at night, you hear a jazz and piano jamming together? Well, I mean, I, I, this is not a, a supernatural podcast. I, I have no idea. I'm not that kind of guy. You know, I can't say yes and I can't say no, but I'm sure that that location itself is so 
There's got to be some weird energy there, right? So iconic of at least musical strife. You know what I mean? Like yeah. nothing, nothing short of I bet playing in that room would inspire something. I hope so. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I yeah, I, I hesitate to even say anything about it just because of how interesting and deep that really, uh, really drives in that kind of musical folklore. So I don't know. That is. That is truly a great ending to the story, though. Well, and so do you want to know his official cause of death? Oh, fuck yeah, I do. Well, his official cause of death was lobar pneumonia and a bleeding ulcer. But he also suffered from an advanced case of psoriasis, and he also suffered a heart attack. Wait, what? Yeah. Yeah, he, so essentially he was dying, and then he had a heart attack, and also had a really bad skin condition at the same time. No, cirrhosis. Oh, I is, thought you said psoriasis. No, cirrhosis. Of like the liver. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's gross. <laughs> so Charlie Parker was 34 when he died. He was not old. Yeah, I'm about to be 34. I am 34. Yeah, that's... that's. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I am definitely physically hurting a lot more when I was, than when I was in my 20s. I, f- I would say this is the first year I feel old. You know what I mean? Like, I, this is not that not that moment, but you know what I mean? Like, this is the first year where I actually feel like I get up in the morning like, oh, fuck. Well, just be glad you didn't live your life like Charlie Parker, because according to his autopsy report, he had the body of a man well over 50. Oh, those, that, yeah, the heroin and shit have rot you in. Heroin, drinking, all that stuff. And he was actually buried, actually got a tombstone. He was buried in Kansas City's Lincoln Cemetery over the objections of Chan, his girlfriend. And she went by Chan Parker by this point. And the reason why she objected is because they gave him a Christian burial. And apparently he was pretty atheist. And she thought he needed a different burial. That's kind of a shame. And I I, I don't really want to get too deep into it because of the subject matter. But, you know, anytime... People should be laid to rest in the way they feel. Right, but you got to remember, they were never actually married. Legally, she had no no ground to stand on. It was his mom's only child, and she buried him the way she felt she needed to. Yeah, and honestly, I, I don't say I would disagree with that, just because, you know, if a mother outlives a child, let the mother bury the child. How it, You know, it's, we've all, I guess in the end of this podcast, we've kind of, dove into a uh, a little bit more somber like emotional tone so i don't, I don't want to dig too much yeah, into we, it, we, but. we laughed at all his you know misgivings but at the end of the day he suffered for it and from the, and the people of it, around him suffered oh yeah and like it sounds like he kind of painfully went you know i mean it does not sound like he went went out gently oh my god yeah and so i mean you know what what can you really say about that? That's uh, it's a tragic story, without a villain. You know, like you can technically say that Charlie Parker kind of dug his own grave in a in a kind of way. Oh, we're we're running a little longer than typically usual, but honestly, it's it's worth it at this point. I mean, but it's the time when we have to really draw our last thoughts. Yeah, it is definitely time for our last thoughts. Uh, Charlie Parker. <laughs> I, 
you know, going into this, I always have such a such a jovial, excited, like, you know, happy, like happy go lucky kind of mentality. And then like when we get to the end, sometimes it's so hard to properly like feel the, you know, draw the right emotional context, because unlike unlike fiction, real life doesn't work the way that fiction does. Right. There's no no good guy and no bad guy in every story. You well, know, and if you think about it, a lot of the problems he had didn't start coming around till he got in that accident and then got addicted to heroin because it was prescribed to him. Exactly. So and there, there's so many situational things where you just you have to empathize with the man, but you can't empathize with the way that he reacted to the rest of the situations he had control over. Right. And so like morality wise, it's hard for me to identify with charlie parker as this like mythos folk legend sort of thing you know what i mean like because that's really what we're here to do yeah i mean it took a little while for us to really realize it but here do check out the song we care most about one thing and it's those those folk auras the the greater bigger than life musician feeling that you get from a, a good history and a and a interesting death and great music in between you know what i mean oh yeah we love that kind of stuff that is that is that is true entertainment but it's it's these ones where this is a sad one i i can't do anything but be sad for him well and he changed the face of music i mean he changed the way people thought about music and maybe not right away but eventually like a lot of progressive rock musicians from like the 70s would dig into his stuff like drummers guitar players they would dig into his stuff and go that's what they're doing we need to do that in our band like he changed the way people thought about music and and, and it carries on forever i mean if anybody's ever followed the ninja turtles we all know there's a very specific very <laughs> crazy character named bebop yeah like in it it is they're named after music genres the bebop and rock yeah bebop, bebop and rock city but you know like just think of that like charlie parker and his personal strife and his his weight and his load and his emotional existence and how he interpreted that into music transitions so hard into pop culture that nobody knows about Charlie Parker. But I guarantee more of you know about Bebop and Rocksteady. More of you know about Miles Davis. Yeah, Miles Davis. That's a that's a huge name. But without Charlie Parker, Miles Davis probably wouldn't have been the Miles Davis you know. Yeah, because what you don't realize is during these meetings, uh, I believe Miles Davis is quite a bit younger, right? Or at least a little bit. I think, yeah, a little bit, but they're about the same Are age. Are they contemporary? But either yeah. way, like, that's that's such an influence, like, structure. And the, the way that Bebop eventually becomes all these other forms of, you know, more influenced free forming jazz like it ever stretches into the culture of jazz itself and not just jazz but like pop culture well and really without him you know the evolution of music just wouldn't have been the same it was him miles davis and dizzy gillespie the latter two became way more known but charlie parker was there he essentially originally had the thought behind bebop and was able to find these guys who could accompany him two super talented musicians to be able to do it with yeah if you follow the folklore like we do that's charlie parker decides he's the one that gets kicked out of the jam session he's the one that gets so fucked up over it that he ruins his life he's the one that decides what bebop is and comes back he even spends 18 hours a day yeah like I, music 
And like I said, this is this is the best we can do as far as folklore stuff because I can only take like I I I swear to God I I draw so, like some of my inspirations tonight from like bebop piano tutorials. Like I watched a bunch of bebop piano tutorials and like people who are clearly well learned just talking and you know musing on what they learn from this man and how to transition it into a modern music sense and how it changed music is it's vast and it's great and it's amazing and it's just such a fucking shame that all of it, these musicians sometimes that we have to talk about that are just so great and so why does it have to be driven on the narcotic why does it or just pain Pain, yeah, well, I mean, it's always pain. Like, it, no matter what, you take any of these musicians who end in, like, a narcotic or, you know, like, downfall, like a heavy downfall, it's pain that leads there. It's some sort of tragedy that leads people into building this crutch for themselves. And some of these people are so fantastically talented. They're once-in-a-generation talents. We won't get a Charlie Parker again. Never again. Never again. And what would we have got if Charlie Parker's life was not as terrible? You know what I mean? It's a, it's an or, interesting perspective. Would it, would it have made the music worse or better? Well, you asked that about all musicians who died early. I mean, this is an artist we're going to cover at some point. One of my favorites, Buddy Holly. You know, he oh died early. God. He died early in an airplane crash. He was getting into the, the Greenwich Village scene, you know, starting to play folk. He was a rock musician. You know, I mean, what could have come out of that? I mean, who knows? I mean... The stamp they put on history, that's all they have. And they died early, and it's its tragic. And who knows what could have come out if they stuck around. And I don't know if anybody's ever listened to a Buddy Holly tune, but that is just some good shit. Like, some really, really good shit. I have Buddy Holly tattooed on me. I love Buddy Holly. <laughs> okay. So, it's so hard to really finalize your your perspective on a story like this. You know what I mean? It's pain and it's suffering, and then it's somebody not dealing with that correctly. But it's also them putting that pain and suffering into art. I mean, some of the best art comes out of pain and suffering. Exactly, and while sometimes I will honestly, I honestly believe at this point, like putting your your pain completely into art and not dealing with it is one of the most destructive things that you can actually do. Yeah. And it is very, very difficult. If any of you are musicians or artists of any kind, really, and you have something that you put a lot of effort into, but you also have a lot of life stress that kind of like weighs heavily on you, and you kind of feel the need to extremely react to it, I guess uh, there's there's a lot of folklore in modern culture with, you know, these suicides and the ending of, you know, rock rock and roll features lives you know i don't have to mention any specifics but i know you guys have all of the the generics running through your mind there's right even now. several lists yeah on that too there's there's so many and you know all of these things while being such a strong storytelling point that is not the way that real success and real you know what i mean that's that's not an emulatable or a good path and so if i if i get anything from my final thoughts I want whoever is out there listening right now to know that dealing with your pain in that sort of way is not necessary. If you have like like deep emotional pain to draw from your art, that is a good thing. As long as you have already dealt with it and you are a master of it. 
there's plenty of help out there for everybody too yeah seriously so you know i'm not gonna i i can't point any person out because goddamn the whole world you know is suffering in one way or the other it, that's just the way it's been for a little while now and so if you need any help look for it don't try and self-medicate and do weird stuff you know be in control of yourself that's my last thoughts for the evening i guess my last thoughts would be just thinking about the legend that he already is and the legend that he could have become there's so much sadness at the end of his life you know his daughter dying from pneumonia i don't think he handled it the right way and just think of some of the greatness that could have come out of this it is it's wasted potential so I know we decided to really uh, bring it down with the serious there at the end of the episode. I, I apologize for having to uh, alleviate it a little bit, but there's no real good act, uh, outro from this episode. Uh, Charlie Parker's tale is sad. It's sad, but there's a lot of good stuff that came out of it. I guess that's the only positive is the really amazing music that came out from the pain that he suffered. Yep. So support your local musicians, support support other artists you like, support your best friends, support people who make art, support people in general. That's that's all we can ask. And honestly, if you if you think that we're kind of cool and you think you want to support us, follow us on some social media stuff. Yeah, we got Twitter, we got Facebook, we got Spotify. I mean, really we talk about a lot of music in this and that's the place to go honestly. We have lists of every episode of the songs we talk about. You want to hear these songs, you, you got to check these out. Yeah, we, we actually make a playlist for every episode, and it, we put a lot of effort into it. One of the things we do when we research is we listen to a lot of the music, and we can't necessarily bring you guys these songs because of the way that the economy of the music industry works. It's not viable for us. Yeah, we don't want to risk getting pull, any of these episodes pulled. And so we just figured it'd be better to give you a way to go find the, this music. And that's our Spotify. Yeah. And so we, if you have Spotify, please, by all means, take a look at it. We have, we got a playlist for every episode. If you set it up right, uh, you know, you, maybe you, you might be able to just listen to the episode, listen to the playlist, listen to the next episode, get a really long, good, like vibe going. It might be really, really good. But most of all. Thank you guys for listening to Do Check Out the Song. We really appreciate it. Seriously, more than anything else, we're kicking off season two here. And uh, more than anything else, I love anybody who listens to the podcast. You guys are fucking amazing. Yeah, and, you know, we're taking this serious. We have upgraded our equipment for the second season. Yeah, I, I hope you all noticed that at some point in the uh, last few episodes of the first season that our audio quality jumped. And I hope at this point, uh, with us having mastered our equipment a little better, that we've... Uh, We've come to a, a level of professionality that we can actually be proud of. Yeah, and no more warnings that we plug things in backwards. We know what we're doing now. We can plug things into the right hole. <laughs> yeah, and whatever jokes are associated with that. Dude, thanks everybody for checking out this song. Have a good night.